Chapter Two of One Commonplace Day by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Miss Wainwright's Muddle. Peter stayed his wheelbarrow and gazed at his mistress in astonishment. Why, yes'm, he said at last, remembering to jerk off the ragged straw hat he wore. I had it at the usual time, ma'am, a quarter before six. His mistress could not keep back a little laugh over the astonishment in his face, but she pursued her investigation. Well, Peter, what did you have? And then Peter hesitated, placed his hat on his head, drew it down indeed so as to shade his face, then, suddenly recollecting, took it off again, his face very red. Meantime Miss Hannah waited, regarding him with interest. Well, ma'am, he said at last, to tell the truth it wasn't as big a breakfast as it might have been, not a square meal. You see, we was a little short this morning, and I just took a bite to stay me, and left the rest for the young ones. Miss Wainwright looked dismayed and bewildered. Do you really mean me to understand, Peter, that your family haven't suitable food and enough of it? Generally speaking, we have, ma'am, but it is an uncommon short time with us just now. We have had a sickness, and a doctor's bill to pay, and I had to lay off two days and a half to help take care of the boy. He was that bad. But he is gaining now, and we all had a bite, and I think our oldest boy will bring home some meal with him when he comes at noon. We've got much to be thankful for, ma'am. We didn't think at one time that the boy would pull through. I didn't know you had a sick boy. What did he have to eat this morning? Why, the mother, she saved up a good slice of bread for him, and toasted it, and Tommy, he bought half a pint of milk from the milkman, and he said, the boy did, that he had a breakfast fit for a king. They all save up for him, ma'am. He's to have a baked potato for his dinner. Miss Hannah turned suddenly, and went in at the kitchen door. Keziah, she said to the gay-turbaned colored woman, who stepped aside to let her pass, cut a large piece of the steak and pour a cup of coffee and arrange things on the table by the window and have Peter come in at once and eat a good breakfast and fill the willow basket with whatever there is that will do for it that cold chicken and the bowl of broth pour that into a tin pail and put in bread and a glass of grape jelly and have Peter take it over to his house as soon as he has eaten his breakfast tell him i say he is to go at once and don't forget the butter and a pail of milk whether ye eat or drink she said to herself as she went back to the dining-room and here is a family near to starvation maybe under my very eyes sickness too i am glad peter has only been in my employ a few days i should feel too ashamed to eat my breakfast if he had been working for me all summer and i had not found out though i don't know as i should have thought to inquire just as likely as not the family are in need of clothing of course they are and they live at the foot of my lane and i don't know a thing about them then she seated herself at her pretty dining-table with a mental determination to step over to peter's and see for herself at the first opportunity keziah as she made a journey to the dining-room with hot water for her mistress's coffee having an eye to the saving of steps asked a question 
Will we be putting up them lace curtains in the upstairs room today? Miss Hannah regarded her with a bewildered air. There it is again, she said at last. I declare now, if it isn't a puzzle. Oh, here's nothing to puzzle a body. I can climb the stepladder and fix them as well as not. Miss Wainwright laughed. It is a puzzle that refuses to be settled with hammer and tacks, and your skillful fingers, she said. What have lace curtains in my spare bedroom to do with the glory of God, do you know, Keziah? Ma'am? said Keziah, in unbounded astonishment. Her mistress laughed again, a laugh that had a note of trouble in it. There it is, she said. That is as much as I know about it. No, we'll let the curtains wait a while. They may go up to-morrow, and they may not. I don't see, for my part, how they are to be made to fit. They fit to an inch, said Keziah, with decision and an air of superior wisdom. I measured them myself yesterday afternoon with the rule. But they've got to be measured by a rule in a little book upon my bureau. That's the trouble. Ma'am? said Keziah again, and she wondered whether her mistress was suddenly losing her strong and active mind. Who ever heard of talk like this? Miss Wainwright saw difficulties in the way of explaining herself more clearly, and therefore dismissed Keziah with another statement to the effect that the curtains were not to be touched for the present. Her breakfast concluded, she still resolved in her mind the problem of life which had been sprung upon her that morning out of her little volume of daily food. Stepping to the front door, she set it open, and then wandered down to the front gate, stopping here and there to train a stray bush or pick a bright flower. She reached the gate just in time to receive a greeting from one of her favorites, a young fellow who thought he was studying law in an office downtown. He stopped, his handsome eyes lighting with pleasure at sight of her, and held out his hand over the gate. "'Good morning, Auntie. How does life use you this morning?' "'Better than I use it. Things are in a muddle.' "'No, you don't say that you are muddled. That alarms me. I always have satisfaction in thinking of the straightforwardness with which you take up life. What has happened?' Miss Wainwright looked with a dissatisfied air at the cigar which he had removed from his mouth. "'So you smoke,' she said. "'I didn't know it. Have the goodness to stand the other side of the breeze, will you? I like to keep control of my own throat, and I don't choose to choke it up with tobacco.' "'I beg your pardon, Auntie. I did not know that the odor of cigars was so disagreeable to you, or I would not have presumed to stop at your gate with one in my hand.' and he tossed the offender into the road. I don't think I ever heard you mention the matter before. There is no use in talking about smoky chimneys all the time. If they will smoke, about all you can do is to keep away from them, if you haven't the power to write them. I know that men smoke, some of them, and I suppose they will continue to do so, for all me. But as for liking it, I can give you a bit of news, young man, if you want it. No woman likes to have tobacco burned up or puffed at her. I beg your pardon, the young man said again. I did not notice that the wind was in your direction. You mustn't be too hard on me, though. I never smoke in the presence of ladies, nor in rooms which ladies frequent. 
I would not even smoke in your kitchen. No, I guess you wouldn't. This with a positive setting of Miss Wainwright's firm mouth and a decided shake of her head. I keep control of my own house, you know, and smoky chimneys there are what I don't stand, neither the self-made kind nor the imported ones. Not but what I am willing to own that you are probably too much of a gentleman to try it. Some aren't, though. They haven't had all your advantages in life. That Job Perkins, who cleaned out my cellar last week, came puffing into my kitchen with a nasty pipe in his mouth that smelled like a worn-out furnace. Bless me, I said to him, there isn't a flue in my house that will work with that kind of smoke. You'll just have to go and puff it outside. Mother Nature has got to stand being poisoned, I suppose, but I won't. He went away muttering that the quality who could afford high-priced cigars were allowed to smoke where they wanted to, without an everlasting fuss being made about it. He was mistaken so far as that was concerned. But I suppose you belong to the quality he spoke of, and smoke the high-priced cigars. The handsome young fellow laughed pleasantly. That's just the point, he said gaily. I do smoke first-class cigars always. I will not use any others. And as for a pipe, I dislike it as much as you can. What connection there is between good cigars and Job Perkins's ill-smelling pipe is more than I can imagine. I know it. Job Perkins is a brother of yours, to be sure, according to the Bible. But then he's a miserable sort of a poor relation, who, as he says, cannot afford good cigars and it ought to be nothing to him what you elegant gentlemen do. I don't suppose, if the truth were known, that Job ought to afford even his nasty pipe. But the idea of you quality setting a good example for him to follow is absurd, of course. He ought to have brains enough to know that he doesn't belong to the same world with your set. Auntie, what makes you so peppery this morning? I believe Jack Frost has nipped you. Did you know there was almost a frost last night? Please tell me what has occurred to put you in ill humor with the world in general, and your worthless pupil in particular. I'm not in ill humor with the world. I haven't thought of the world this morning. My puzzle has to do with those who have come out from the world, and are separate, or who say they are. I'm one of them, and you're another. You fit right into the muddle, Charlie. For instance, now, what has that cigar smoke that you make a bellows of your mouth to puff out to do with the glory of God? What? said the startled gentleman. Oh, yes, you may well be astonished. But the fact is, if you have a right to puff it, it ought to fit the pattern. Whether you eat or drink, that's the rule. Though, to be sure, smoking is neither eating nor drinking. What is it, anyway? Where can you classify it, intellectual, mental, or moral? However, it is included, because you remember the next word, I suppose. Whatsoever ye do. It would be rather difficult to slip away from that. Now, what I want to know is, how do you work in the smoking for the glory of God? Upon my word, Auntie, I fail to see what you are driving at. So far as I know, smoking has never been extolled as one of the Christian virtues. I don't pretend that it is necessary to a full Christian development. I am not talking about Christian development, nor Christian virtues, nor any other phrase calculated to hide the plain truth. 
there's the rule do all to the glory of god now cigar smoke either fits in or else it doesn't and if it does i am asking how but aunt hannah there is no end to speculation if you try to run on that line the very puckers in your sleeve would have to be ripped up and looked into if you narrowed things down to such a rule how do they fit come now miss wainwright surveyed the innocent-looking little ruffles on her trim morning dress wearing meantime a grave thoughtful face but she did not keep him waiting long for his answer i don't know ruffles and cigars occupy different positions and one is more harmful to say the least than the other but it is a fair question and if it needs looking into why that is just what i have determined to do about things in general it doesn't alter the argument one whit if i spent at the least calculation twenty-five cents a day year in and year out on ruffles i venture that i should have looked into their merits before this time but as my ruffles are few and far between the truth is they have never taken much of either my money or my thought i don't believe they are a nuisance to anybody and they look neater than cigars now don't they however i am ready to study them and if i find they don't fit rip them off can you say as much for your side what are the arguments for smoking is it necessary to your health or does it keep you from looking odd and so exciting comment or do you smoke to encourage manufacture and so help along industry those are some of the ideas advanced about ruffles and things you know the young man laughed in a half embarrassed manner it is something that i never took the trouble to argue about he said smoking is a luxury i suppose a harmless one i think and therefore i indulge then you don't pretend to do it for the glory of god aunt hannah i beg your pardon for hinting it but really that remark sounds a trifle irreverent to me what does charlie the talking about it or the not living up to it neither the attempt to apply such solemn words to such trivial indulgences my dear boy how can i help that i didn't make the application whatsoever ye do is the exact phrase if the bible is irreverent i am surely not to blame for it but my dear miss wainwright do you seriously think that the verse is to be applied to our everyday movements as you seem to be doing miss wainwright had wonderful penetrating gray eyes at this point she leveled them at the young man before her and gave him the benefit of their depth for a full minute without speaking then she asked her next straightforward question what does it mean why in my judgment it refers in a general way to our living consistent christian lives being careful to do nothing that will bring discredit on the cause why doesn't it say so then pardon me but that is what i think it has done it seems to me that such an interpretation as i have given is the only reasonable one is that the way in which you with your present knowledge of language would have written it if you had prepared a communication for me the object of which was to admonish me in a general way to be careful that i did nothing to bring discredit on your father's family would you have written now miss wainwright whether you eat or drink or whatever you do do all to the glory of our family 
Aunt Hannah, you ought to have been a lawyer. You have a very skillful way of putting a fellow in a corner. I haven't put you in any corner. If you are there, you have yourself to thank for it. I should advise you to review your study of logic before you write a commentary on the Bible. It looks as plain to me as that two and two make four. There is the direction from the one whom we acknowledge has a right to direct us, and our business is to fit our lives to it. Good morning, Mr. Cleveland. And Miss Wainwright's hand was held out cordially to the newcomer. He declined her invitation to enter the house, and made known his errand briefly. The popular temperance orator, who had been resting with him for a day or two, and who had expected to leave that morning, was unable to make connections at Westward, and, therefore, contrary to the reports which had been circulated, would attend the picnic, which had been gotten up to do him honour. The question was, would Miss Wainwright go? "'I'm interested in that question.' young Lambert said, leaning over the gate, and regarding the lady with mischievous eyes. I am anxious to know if a picnic can be made to fit your new rule. The rule isn't new, Charlie. It is eighteen hundred years old. And of course you ought to be interested. If a picnic doesn't fit, we are bound, you and I, to have nothing to do with it. I am not sure whether it does or doesn't. Mr. Cleveland regarded them both with curious eyes. "'May I be permitted to know what particular rule is to be fitted to this picnic?' he asked at last. Miss Wainwright's answer was prompt. "'It isn't the rule that is to be fitted to the picnic, but the picnic that is to be fitted to the rule, though I guess you have solved some of my difficulties. I shouldn't wonder if that were what is the matter with people.' They have been at work trying to fit the rule to their actions, instead of making their actions match the rule. Why, it is the old story, Mr. Cleveland, you are acquainted with it. Whatsoever ye do, you know, do all to his glory. Charlie is exercised as to whether the picnic can be made to glorify him. I don't know whether it can or not, do you? The gleam in Mr. Cleveland's eyes would have told a close observer that he understood the language which the lady was speaking. He glanced from her to the young man, a touch of surprise in his face. Could his thoughts have been read, they would have been something like this. Charlie Lambert troubled with such questionings. There must be more to the young fellow than I had supposed. Perhaps he is the very helper we need. End of chapter 2